Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, I'm going to say it right now, one of my favorite episodes I've done in a long time. We connect so many worlds in this one. Oh my gosh, Joe Sib of the band 22 Jacks of Wax of the godly front line of, of more. More on all that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and a Facebook page and an Instagram page, both are Turned Out a Punk, are run by my brother and show producer and, and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do for the show. I love you, buddy. And if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me at Left for Damien on various forms of social media. If you want to support the show, the best way of doing that is by telling all your friends. Failing that, you can subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes or check out patreon.com slash turnitapunk to see some of the fun stuff we're doing over there. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, do what you do, just don't do it in your own pocket. And we want to support you, so I want to thank them for all that they do. Well, I'm putting out so many of these, I don't think I have too much to get to before we dive into today's show. Today on the show, Joe Sib. Now, I first knew about Joe Sib through being the lead singer of 22 Jacks, but he is someone that career goes way beyond, way before that and way beyond that. And yeah, like when I realized that the same Joe Sib that was in 22 Jacks and Wax was also the Joe Sib on the godly Frontline 12 inch on IM Records, well, I had to make this happen. I had to make this happen ASAP. And little did I know that we'd also be drawing in like all this jackass stuff and Weezer. Oh, I'm going to give you any more spoilers. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore. As you can hear in the background, we got a, a homeschool kicking away in the basement. So I got to go deal with that. But uh, for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy Joe Sib on Turned Out a Punk. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me, man. From the moment I heard your show and became a fan of it, I, I got to say, I was like, I want to be on that show. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, I'm glad it's audio, so you can't see me blush right now, but that is too kind ah. of you. Um, because I am... I am incredibly indebted to you as a front person from your various bands, but there is going to be uh, uh, the. I gotta say, I didn't even realize this until the other week, but the Frontline LP twelve inch is one of my favorite twelve inches ever, and I had no idea that that was you till recently. There you go, Frontline. Looking, what is it outside your window? I had braces on. I have braces on. <laughs> Very weird, creepy record cover. But I'm sure oh my god! <laughs> like there's like a oh my god for everyone listening, man. It's like it's so he's so Damien. You're so right. I don't know what we were thinking. It's like <laughs> we, we we're there's this girl. She's laying on a bed, and it's like front line outside your window. Okay, I don't know who came up with that idea. And then there's a Billy Idol poster, so you can tell it's the '80s. <laughs> and then for some reason, I'm I'm wearing like shorts with thermals underneath and Vans. <laughs> And like I have like a flat top and a pair of sunglasses in my hand. Like it is – I don't know what we were thinking that day. I don't it, know. It's funny on that image because you almost seem more contemporary than everyone else in the band who's got like the shaggy hair and much more of the time. Like you look like you could have been pulled out of a, a, a band from now or like any point in history. It's, it's very like yeah. – 
the vibe's incredible. Yeah, you know, I don't know though, but I will say that I think I want to bring back shorts with thermals underneath. That's a strong <laughs> yes. look. Yeah, that is a strong look. Well, I think it peaked with in the '90s with grunge, but now I'm looking at the photographic evidence that you're the originator of that vibe. I want. I, I hope that. I hope that when it when I'm when I'm gone and at my funeral, anyone that speaks at it, you know, my kids. I hope that one of them do say, "Hey," and before we get out of here. Uh, you know, we want to all let everyone know my dad was the uh, creator and uh, inventor of thermal <laughs> underneath shorts. And anyone that doesn't think that cannot come back uh, to the bar and drink. All right, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll be like, thank you for having me up. I'm now going to do a 35 minute lecture about the frontline 12 inch. So everyone get comfortable. There you go. Um, oh my gosh. But I got to start this off, Joe, the way I start them all off, which is how'd you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Oh, totally. Um, I was at my grandma's house and um, I have this memory of sitting uh, with my grandma because I would stay with her like, you know, my mom and dad would go out on like a Friday or Saturday night. And totally. I remember, you know, she would like watch me like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, we're going to watch TV and I was allowed to stay up and like we'd get pizza and she was super, super just fun, you know. And I remember the news came on and I remember briefly – her going, oh my gosh. And it was the Sex Pistols. And they were like, they were here in America and they were kind of like talking about them. And I remember they were just sitting around these four tables, these four chairs. And I like, even as a little kid, I was like, whoa, what's that? So then fast forward till it was 19, uh, I want to say it was like 1982. And it was December 27th. And I remember my parents had gotten separated. And now I was, you know, I was in like seventh grade. And I was hanging out and my dad was taking me on the weekends and it was super cool because, you know, it was a bummer that my parents got divorced. But the thing that was cool is my dad like never missed a weekend. He'd always be there. And at that point I was a little kid and it was like, I skateboarded a lot, but like, I'd never, like, I never knew other people skateboarded mm -hmm. and growing up in Santa Cruz, there were skateboarders, but like there were, there were, you know, we were obviously, you know, by the beach and everything, but like, the skateboard park that was there had closed and, you know, the kids that were like skating together were older. So like I was just this kid that had a skateboard, but I was really into skateboarding. Like that was like definitely the sport that I loved. And one weekend while I was visiting my dad, he picked me up and he said, hey, man, don't forget your skateboard because there's a skateboard park I found out by my house. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. So we go there and I remember we pull up and it's like the classic thing where like, I'm not going in there. There's no way. <laughs> yeah. There's like way too many kids. And like I have a bowl haircut and I think I have a turtleneck on at this point in my life. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's not and the vibe. I, yeah. Yeah, it's so much not the vibe. But my dad was like, come on, like go in there. Like I know how much you love skateboarding. You're always reading Skateboarder Magazine. Like you're always skateboarding. Like come on. And I was like, dad, I'm not going in. And I remember he sat me down and like I always tell this to people. Like he was such a good parent and he just really got – like he knew how to like get in my head but not in a, like a negative way. He just said, look, here's the deal. Let's go in there, skateboard for 15 minutes. Worst case scenario, we'll, we'll leave. Like if you're not feeling it, you know, we walk out. No one knows. It's all good. He's all, let me go in there. I'll get it set up for you. I'll pay your money. You can literally – come in, put your pads on. And then we'll just, you know, you go into the skateboard park and I'll meet you over by this fence. And I was like, uh, and he leaves. And then I remember I'm watching these kids skateboard and I'm like, Oh my God. And I can hear music in the background. 
And I and I am like, wow, like, okay, there's music, there's kids skateboard. All right. He comes back. All right, let's go. I'm like, Dad, I don't want to do it. He's like, come on, let's just go. Come on, let's do it. All right. We go in there. Immediately, my dad knows everybody. They're like, hey, what's up? He's <laughs> talking to everybody. Hey, what's your name? Hey, this is my son Joey. Hey, you should meet Joey. All right. Joe, he skateboards. You skateboard. I'm like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> I remember I go outside. I start in this little corner and I remember at the time it wasn't even like the part of the skateboard park that like people are skateboarding on. It was just like a back of a run and I did a couple kick turns on there and then all of a sudden, you know, that kick turn, oh wow. And then like it went from 15 minutes to 20 to 30 to all of a sudden an hour to all of a sudden two hours to all of a sudden like I always say like it went from that to like every weekend to, you know, my entire life up until literally this moment you and I are talking, skateboarding just took over my life. And, and the thing that was so crazy about that particular day was, you know, after that first day of skateboarding, my dad started taking me there every weekend. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I met friends and I'll never forget. I was there skateboarding one day and always, there was always this, uh, this like stereo boom box in the back of the park. And this guy named uh, Andy Berenson's brother, I, I still remember his name. He would play cassettes off of there. And I remember I was like on the other side of the park, but it was so loud. You could hear it. And all of a sudden, you know, I would hear this music and I was like, what the hell is that? And it would be 999, the Buzzcocks, Black Flag, Circle Jerks. Um, you know, I knew who the Ramones were, but I never heard like more than like one song. And I remember as I'm hearing this music and everyone's skating to it, I remember one day we were all inside this, you know, I was inside the skateboard park and I'm skating and all of a sudden like six punkers walked in and I remember like the whole energy of the park changed. Everyone was just like, whoa. And it was like these six guys and it was this entourage. And I remember as they walked in, I can still see it right now in my head. Like, like they're walking through, you know, over to this one, this huge bowl that everyone's skating in. And I remember they're sitting up in the stands and like, like one of the guy, like one of the guys has like a trench coat on. Another guy has a shaved head with like the bandana, you know, kind of like circle jerks, you know, the skate yeah, guy. Yeah. And then like, there's, there's a spiky hair dude, you know, kind of GBH looking. Then like, it was the first time I saw a studded jacket. Then there was, I think there was even like a rockabilly dude hanging out. And then there was this girl, you know, with like the bangs, skinhead look. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, dude, I couldn't stop staring at them. Like, I was like, who are these people? And then, you know, the music. And then all of a sudden, one of the dudes jumps over the fence, grabs a skateboard and starts skateboarding, no gear in the pool and ripping. And I'm like, oh my God, who is that? And then, you know, they get yelled at and they leave. And I was just like, at that moment, I was like, what the hell <laughs> is that? Yeah. And I, re I remember hanging out in the skateboard park and I met this kid named Donald, McKech Donald McKechnie and he was this kid. He had a shaved head. Like one day, one day he looked like me. Like I'll never forget. Like when I first met Donald, he looks like me. Mm -hmm. He's in seventh grade. He has, you know, a bull haircut, a turtleneck his parents made him wear. And then literally like over the next like five weeks, I'm hanging out with Donald and then one day he shows up. Uh, shaved head and a flannel on. I'm like, whoa, what's up? <laughs> and then the next day, the hair's bleached. And then the next day, he has like a circle A shirt on. And then I'm like, oh my, I like, he is just going for it. And I'm, and I'm hanging with him. And he's the one that's like telling me like, dude, you got to listen to the Buzzcocks. Dude, you got to listen to the Circle Jerks. Oh my God, have you ever listened to Black Flag? What's that? He's just, oh, he's just like, 
he's like almost like a tutor to me in music. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I just I just it was it was the first time ever in my life that like I'd only listen to my parents' music. So like, you know, I grew up in an Italian Catholic Irish family that like my parents always had big parties. They always had people over the house. I was always the guy playing the music, you know, for the family. Like but you know, it was stuff like, you know, hey, we're gonna play like, you know, Jerry Vale, Dean Martin, or like, you know, Bob, you know, uh, Bob Dylan, or like, you know, at that point, the Eagles and, and the Beatles. And like, you know, so like my parents were really into music and they were into cool music. Like, you know, the other day, I still have like original pressings of like Ray Charles and like all these cool, you know, Louis Prima records that my dad had. Mm-hmm. But like it was, it was happening, but like it was their music. So all of a sudden, you know, first time I hear like Black Flag, I just, it, it was, it spoke to me so clearly uh, and you know it, it was something that like i knew it was and I, and I know this sounds crazy but it sounded so dangerous it sounded so scary not scary like oh god i'm gonna have bad dreams but just like okay this energy and these people that are into this music like i'm about like i, I i'm this is connecting big time with me because like you know the music that the the music that they're listening to and and the way that these people look and and the vibe I'm picking up on them I don't know what it is but it's it's just it was like a magnet dude it was mm-hmm. just drawing me in so at that point I remember you know I I I met one friend but it's funny because you had him on your show a, a few months back was you know Johnny Peabucks from the Swinging Utters uh, you know he was we were in school together and the <laughs> other guy was this guy named Kevin Wickersham so. I come back on the, you know, on the weekends, I'm telling them, dude, I go to the skateboard park. We hear black flag. We hear circle jerks. I hear Ramones, you know, and I remember Kevin Wickersham. He was the one that told me, dude, the Ramones aren't brothers. And I'm like, really? They're not. He's like, no, dude, they're a band. I'm like, really? Cause see Kevin Wickersham and Johnny Bennell had older siblings. Yeah. I did not Yeah. So, so, so just like Johnny talked about his brother, Steve and his brother, Donna, like when he was talking about, you know, them, and, and him going up to Steve's room to listen to music. I was with him when he was doing that. You know, I, I was like, dude, let's listen to the who, like what? Like, I remember he turned me on to the who they, they, so many records. And I remember Steve had this stereo and he would just play stuff so loud. And, you know, Johnny and I, I'd spend the night at his house, you know, and this, you know, we're little kids. We're yeah. in like fifth and sixth grade. So like when I discovered, you know, punk rock, all of a sudden when I came back to Santa Cruz, on on the weekdays to go to school with Kevin and, and Johnny and you know the rest of us in our Catholic, you know th- twenty person, you know seventh grade and thirty person eighth grade, like all of a sudden with with those guys we were both all three of us were just like all right we gotta suss out like what this is all about like okay we have Steve who's Johnny's older brother turning us on to the Kinks and the Ramones and and all this but like. Uh, you know who? Wh- you know what? What? Are, what? Are, where do we get Black Flag? Where? You know where do we get to hear the adolescence? Like what is this? And I remember, um, I remember we all went. We used to go to a flea market in in Santa Cruz, and it was like on the weekends where like you go down there and like you know it's like everyone's selling all their stuff. And I'll never forget it. Me, Johnny, and Kevin Wickersham, Johnny Bennell and Kevin Wickersham both went on to start the Swinging Outers. That weekend, we were walking around, and someone was selling you know, records and cassettes. And we bought, uh, for $3, the cassette of the first clash record. And I remember we, you know, we, we, we bought it for three bucks and we had to scrounge our money together. And I remember, I remember Johnny, Kevin and I were like, Hey, 
you know, we'll buy it for three bucks, but we'll share it. You know, <laughs> yeah, and I was course. like, I was like, yeah. And of course I was like, okay, I get first week. And they're like, sure. And I never gave it back. <laughs> and that right there, that was the game changer. That first record by the clash. Uh, you know, it was, I was just like, oh my God. And, and for me, the, I mean, like, obviously, you know, like that record was the first one that like I get and I listen to it. And I think it was such a great blueprint for like what was to follow in my life because that record had, you know, you had, you know, a song like white riot mm -hmm. that was fast and furious and made you, you know, want to go nuts. And then it also had like police and thieves, which I was like, what kind of music is this? You know, like what, like junior Marvin, who's that? Is he in their band? Like that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't even know what a cover was, you know? And then, you know, of course you have Janie Jones and career opportunities. So like I, it's such a mix of really like what was really, the bar was set so high for me on it, you know, which I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And then I keep hanging out. And then right around that time period that I get that Rodney on the rock, on vinyl gets introduced to me. And I remember I'm like, Oh my God. And on that record, you know, you had the, you had the adolescence, you had agent orange. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like, what is, what is this? Same time Ramones huge impact in my life. You know, uh, Ramones, uh, it was, it was, you know, obviously road to ruin game changer for me. Um, but really Ramones, it's alive. The, the two shows recorded in, you know, England on New Year's Eve, oh, what a record. I think 76. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, like I remember I would lay there and, and to this day I still get hyped up at the beginning of that record where the crowd fades in <laughs> and then you hear Johnny go, and then you hear Dee, Dee go, and then all of a sudden Joey goes, Hey, we're the Ramones. Uh, and this, Hey, we're the Ramones. And this one's called Rockaway beach. And then they go, right. Like to this day, I can listen to just that beginning of that <laughs> album and I, I immediately am so pumped and psyched and it's just like it, – it's like I'm hearing it for the first time. Um, so like that record was super important and then the, the thing that really kind of glued it all together for me was I'm skateboarding every weekend. I'm going to the skateboard park every – as much as I can. Like I am there like – like from the time my dad picks me up, he'll drop me off. I skate all day. I listen to music. I skate. I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Steve Cavallaro, you know, who went on, you know, and still is one of the, you know, the most legendary skateboards. That was his home park. So I'm, I'm watching him as an amateur go from being an amateur to Stacy Perel to literally coming to the park and, and, you know, he gets, you know, he's signed already to pal and then Stacy coming to visit him. I'm there when he's, you know, doing photo yeah, shoots. I'm, like, I'm witnessing. Yeah. I'm witnessing this guy literally become, you know, the athlete and the skateboarder that he is. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I'm hearing this music and I'm meeting these kids, you know, the, these two brothers, Gavin O'Brien, uh, Corey O'Brien, um, you know, uh, such a huge part of the San Jose scene. And, uh, then lastly, Kevin Wiggersham. We had this assignment every day or every week where you had to write in your journal for school. Yeah. And and this is where it all glues together. I you know, you had to write like the teacher wanted you to write, like, what's on your mind? But like, dude, when you're in seventh or eighth grade, you're like, Okay, what's on my mind is like, how can I jack and like how do my parents not catch me? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, you're just like discovering like who you are. And I remember I go, God, dude. I always, I can never fill, you had to fill up like seven pages mm -hmm. and he's, and he's like, Oh dude, you know how you fill it up? And I go, how? And he goes, just find a song that you like 
and, and then you learn the lyrics and then just write the lyrics down. And I'm like, wow, that's a cool idea. So then all of a sudden, like, I'm like, I want to le- learn the lyrics to lobotomy. So like I sat down and like, I'd play the song and I'm like, oh, DDT did a job on me. Now I am a real sickie. Guess I'll have to break the news that I've got no mind. So I would just learn lyrics to these songs, adolescence, like to this day, Amoeba, we are scientists in our lab, tuned to the mic. Like I learned all these lyrics to these songs because I would write them in this little journal that we turned into our nun. Mm-hmm. But the pro- the thing that's so funny was obviously she wasn't reading it because think about it. She, if she was reading these journals, she would have been like, what is wrong <laughs> yeah, with this kid? What are you doing this? He's, you know, what is he talking about? Amoeba and Rockaway Beach and lobotomies. And that really was how it kind of all got tied together because I was, I was in the right place at the right time. It was the eighties. I was at the skateboard park. The music was happening. And then, you know, I had these two friends that, that had older brothers and older sisters. And that's why like when Johnny talked about it with you, I was like, Oh my gosh, like I totally remember that. So were you at any, cause like, didn't the O'Brien brothers have a backyard where they did shows too? Well, basically the O'Brien brothers. So like the way the O'Brien brothers, you know, they were, first of all, you had Gavin. He was the oldest the singer in the faction, right? Yep. Singer of the faction. And, uh, you know, at this point, um, you know, the O'Brien brothers, like their place in the scene was they lived over in Santa Clara. I lived in Campbell and, and, you know, it was super close to each other, but the, the, those guys, like the, the, the way I became friends with them was because they, they, you know, both were at the skateboard park, they both skated. And then after the skateboard park closed down, um, you know, Gavin started the faction and the faction started, you know, doing shows and I was super tight with Gavin and Adam and I knew Stevie and I would go over and watch them practice and then every once in a while, you know, they would have a show like, hey, man, we're going to the city. You know, we're opening for the Exploited. And I was like, hey, man, can I get a ride? Yeah. And I'd ride up in the van with them. Or whenever they played, you know, they, they played San Jose. Obviously, I was always at all of those shows. Mm-hmm. And I was there from like the moment they started, you know, literally to like this year, like I sang for them because Gavin's mom got sick and, uh, and they needed a fill in for them for the Flogging Molly crew. So it was super fun, like going full circle, like you know, singing, singing with them and, and playing because I was always such a fan and in the crowd, you know, so it was, it was super cool to do that. But like that, those guys, they didn't have a backyard that they did shows at, but they were always like, like they brought social distortion once Mm -hmm. to San Jose on father's day. Like they, they were, they were definitely, um, they were definitely like, it was, it was super cool growing up in, in the time that I did in San Jose because that really like Gavin and Corey, they, they had a magazine called skate scene and like they interviewed bands. They, they, I remember they, they'd work on this magazine, they'd sell it at shows. And I remember like, they also put on shows like, like, you know, like I said, social distortion came to San Jose cause they put on the show. Um, you know, Stevie, you know, besides being a ripping skateboarder, he had a magazine called skate punk. Um, then you had all these people in bands. Like I just grew up, like people always say to me, they're like, they're like, wow, you know, like, what was it like growing up in San Jose? And I tell them, like, I don't know. All my friends were entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. You know, literally everyone was in a band. Everyone had a fanzine. Everyone was putting on shows. Everyone was throwing a party. Everyone was doing something for the scene. And I really feel that impacted my life in such a huge way because I just grew up around people that were doing things. Like, like it was so 
standard to know the kid that like was bringing like my friend there was this guy named larry and he we called him larry club x because he used to run a club called club x but he was also the guy that would bring bands to san jose you know and then there you know there was other bands los avidados uh that were they were just an amazing band and like at the time incredible band yeah i didn't really even know how amazing los avidados was but in my and i just and i'm not saying this because you know, I grew up and I saw them and I love them, but they to me are one of the most underrated, unfortunately non-discovered punk bands from the '80s. They by far—I mean, dude, if, I'll tell you right now. Like, if the faction, if all four of those dudes were on the phone with me, well, one of them was in Los Sabidados, so it'd really be all three of them. <laughs> you know, if I said to them, "Hey, man, Los Sabidados, hands down, best punk band ever from San Jose," they're not even going to question it. I mean, this band was so ahead of their time, songwriting. Playing wise, uh, sonically, I mean, they they just were amazing, and uh, so that that was I got to see them all the time, and it really set the bar for like me when I finally decided to go and like you know I went from like skateboarder and and then I just my whole time in high school, my my dad always said to me, you know, there's no way that you legally graduated from high school because you never. <laughs> You never even carried a book home. All I saw you do was carry a skateboard to and from school. And all you ever did was talk on your phone in your bedroom about punk rock at full volume or, or a party or a show or going to a show or organizing a show. Like that's, that was all you did. Like, and I remember, you know, when I graduated, my dad didn't even come to my graduation because he was so let down. I remember he said, he said, look, I love you. And, you know, cause he's like full on, you, you know, my dad's involved in education his whole life, like higher learning mm-hmm. and such a, like such a smart man, you know? And, and, and unfortunately, you know, he had a son that only knew like six words, dude, bro. Awesome. Fuck. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, like he was just so like, he was so like, Oh my God. You know, but, but my dad also was super supportive, but I remember, you know, when I graduated from high school, he was like, Joe, I don't know how you pulled it off. Like, I'll give you credit, but I don't know how you did it, you know? And, and and to make things worse too, he's like, what do you want for graduation? And I remember I'm like, I want to get a keg. And he's like, a cake? And I go, no, I want to get a keg. And he's like, a keg of beer? And I go, yeah. And I want to take it to Agent Orange because they're playing tonight. And he was just like, everyone else is talking about like maybe a down payment on a car or a trip to Europe or you know, maybe, you know, something like that. And my son wants a keg of beer to go see Agent Orange. And he's like, all right, take me to get this keg. And I remember that's how I celebrated my graduation. You were, you were like, dad, it was your fault for forcing me to go in the skate park. This could have all broken completely differently otherwise. Oh man. No, my dad was so supportive, man. He was, he's been great. You know, it's, you know, it's funny. You're, you're always the opposite of your parents, you know, it's, but, uh, but I mean, I, you know, for me, I mean, literally punk rock, and skateboarding, it shaped my life to like the human being that I am like at this moment we're talking because you're right. Like if he wouldn't have taken me to the skateboard park, I never would have gotten into any of the, the, the things and the music. And I, I literally wouldn't have had the life that I've had, you know, for the last, you know, since that day, 35 years ago, 38 years ago, it, my life totally was set because he took me to skateboard park. It changed my life. It's also wild, like, you know, like Brian Ray, Ray Turcott, Lars, like just so many people that did like cool things yourself, obviously 
Steve Caballero. Like, there's so many people that come out of that Campbell San Jose scene, sticky, like just yeah. tons of shit. We all went to high school. We all went to high school together. Me, you know, me and Lars and Brian. Brian and I both graduated the same year. Brian, you know, Brian's the reason I moved to LA. You know, like like Brian literally talked me into moving to LA. Um, you know, Lars and I, I you know, I was there, you know, that that famous photo of Lars in the in the drum set of yeah, the faction. That's the show in I was, that backyard. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, that was at Ronnie Tannehill's <laughs> house. I always joke around. Ronnie Tannehill like lived by himself at like 15. His parents were always in Europe. Yeah. So weird. You know, and it was like the Necro. It was the Necros, Ribsy, the faction. Uh, Necros were in town. The show got canceled. You know, before we knew it, phone calls were made. Ronnie Tannehill's like, dude, let's have the show in my backyard. And sure enough, you know, like that night, everyone played. Drums are sliding around. And there's this little kid there named Lars, you know, he's just a kid. You may, I don't even, he might've been like 10, 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sure enough, someone puts him in front of the drum set and he had to sit there. I used to do a joke about it on stage. Cause I would show a picture of Lars sitting in front of the drum set at 11 years old. And, you know, he's got his ear plugged and I go, that kid sat there for six bands. <laughs> I mean, think about it. You know, that's a lot of time, dude, in front of a kick drum. And, you know, I doubt anyone offered him any earplugs, <laughs> you know, nothing. There was no, there was no, um, you know, pa- parental, you know, oh, hey, maybe this isn't right. You know, and as a father now, I'm like, oh, my God, the damage that was done. And then I used to always cut to a photo of Lars now with the tattoo on his forehead. And I say, that's what happens. You know, you sit in front of the drums for, you know, six bands at 10. You end up with the skunks tattooed on your forehead. It'll change you. you. Know, it's it'll like, change you for life. It, it'll change you. And it's funny because Lars and I, you know, growing up together, you know, that guy – for everything that he's done for all the music for you know the inspiration that he's had on so many people it's he's he's still the same guy and whenever we see each other it's like we pick up right where we left off like we just start joking around and it's it feels like two guys just you know hanging out at the at the cactus club in San Jose you know just shooting the shit like mm-hmm. he's you know he's just still the same guy and uh you know I love that about people like that like you know because once again he's another guy that little did we know that you know growing up in san jose you know what it would really spawn the the life that you know each of us got to have from that scene of of people i'm sure he feels the same way about the 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 shows and the and the clubs and the zines and how everyone was doing something Mm -hmm. because you know rampton was that kind of band that's always just done it their way Mm -hmm. yeah no like as you say like and look how many people went out of there like how many labels came out of the this backyard oh yeah mike park yeah like so much stuff you know yeah mike park you you know he you know you know later on with skank and pickle Mm -hmm. you know i never was a part of that scene but like you know like you know mad respect for everything he did and then you know you had i am records which was the that was the first label i believe that you know really came out that was like out of you know that was out of adam from the factions bedroom in 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 his mom's house i mean i used to go over there and i just would sit and watch this is pre-computers this is pre- I mean, we had, he had a phone and his mom was supportive. Like you guys can practice here and you can run your label out of our, out of our TV room. But like I sat there and I just watched Adam and, and the guys in the band like book a tour. And it was so like, I was like, wait a minute. You're, I mean, you guys are going to play in Sacramento. You're going to play in Chicago. How's that even possible? 
I get like it's also just so wild. Like once again, it's just a scene that was very self-contained. Like it's not waiting for SST to sign you. It's not waiting for some other label. It's like starting your own label, starting your own thing. Yeah, but once again, I don't think we knew any different. Honestly, Damien, I think we just thought like it. Like I can tell you this right now: no one was saying to each other, "Yeah, man, we're so rad. We started our own label. We're so rad. We put on our own show." No one was, you know, patting each other on the back because they thought they were great. It was, I honestly think it was just like, Hey man, what are we going to do? Uh, why don't we just like, like record it and put it out? Okay. Yeah. That'll be cool. Uh, Hey man, like, dude, we should do a show. I know. How can we rent a venue? I don't know. Does your, would your parents let us use their credit card? I don't know. Let's try. You know, like it was just like, you know, I remember once I rented a generator on my dad's credit card and blew the generator up. Like he was not stoked, but we needed a generator for the party so the band could play. Yeah. You know, like you know, like I I don't think any of us. I mean, in fact, I know no one was like, yeah, we're we're this we're gonna look back on this and think it was amazing. We were just like, where's the next show? Who's the next band? Oh, someone's coming to town. Like you know, yeah, put them up, you know, see if they can stay at our house. Mm-hmm. But that was, you know, and it was also the time of like Maxim rock and roll where like, you know, there's this thing called the scene report and like they used to, you know, in Maxim rock and roll. And, and I'm pretty sure they still do it. Where like, you know, you would, you would do the scene report from up there and I would do the scene report from San Jose and someone would do it from Chicago and someone would do it from, you know, New York, someone would do it from Florida, you know, Pensacola. And like, and then you kind of read the scene report and that was kind of like the internet so that you could figure out like, oh, dude, th- these places are happening. And then you would – the person would leave their name at the end of their article like, oh, this week Naked Reagan came through and I'm super psyched. GBH is coming back. And then there's a big skinhead problem at this club. There's always a skinhead problem. Yeah, always, that was always something. That's a constant. Always a skinhead. Yeah. Someone got stabbed. That was always a part of an article. Mm-hmm. And uh, – and then I remember um, they would leave their phone number at the end. And I remember for like the scene report of San Jose, someone left my phone number as someone that could like help book a show. And that was like, that was like literally, you know, having a website because <laughs> yeah. everyone started calling me. And dude, I love to talk to people. So I would just pick up the phone and be like, yo, hey, what's up? And the person would be like, hey, man, is this Justin? I'm like, yeah. They're like, dude, we're from, you know, we're from, you know, Connecticut. Hey, we're, you know, we're in this band, you know, we're in a band, like, you know, we're coming out. Or I remember getting on the phone with like bands from LA. Hey, we're, you know, this is, you know, who would it be like? It would be like our our battalion of saints from San Diego or like, you know, you know, like someone would call it. And then I would just nerd out on like, dude, am I really (laughs) talking to Mark from aggression? (laughs) Fuck, that's cool. You know? And then he figured out real quick, this guy can't book (laughs) But I would, I would still bro down with them. I mean, that's how I met the, that's how I met the Stearns from Youth Brigade. Yeah. I was just a kid. I lo- hey, can I interrupt really? Quick? Am I talking too much? Dude, this is amazing. Don't worry. This is the bread and butter of the show. Okay, so keep. T- oh, I just don't go. want anyone to, to bum out on me. No, this is like honestly, right. this is like, and the stuff you're talking about, like, this is why I do this podcast to to hear these stories and hear this stuff. So please okay. go on. I just don't. I had coffee before I picked up the phone, so I don't want anyone to. <laughs> if anyone's bummed out. You can just email me, josib22 at gmail.com. Okay. Um, but what I was going to say, though, is like that's how I met the Stearns because what ended up happening was, you know, I went to live with my dad in high school, like I said, mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden, you know, like Sync with California, Youth Brigade came out. And that was that was such a record that, that changed my life because I was such a Sham 69 fanatic. I remember that was another band. Like, th- I mean, I 
I loved Sham 69 so much. I loved their lyrics. I love like like I remember the first time I went over to like England and you know Europe, I was telling people like I want to go to Hersham and they were like no you don't. <laughs> you know, like, I was like but yeah, I'm a Sham 69 fan, you know, like and they were like yeah, I don't know if you want to you know, like oh really? And I I was like I want to go to the pub and drink and they're like really, you know, like I was so into Sham 69 and so for me when you know, I I got an opportunity to hear Youth Brigade, and I remember the first time they ever came up to the Bay Area, I was like front and center, knew every word, and I just loved that band so much. And then to really find out that they were brothers, it was just like, oh, are you serious? Like these three dudes are brothers? And then and wait a minute, they have another brother? Like I was so into them, and I love their message and they're Canadian. Then they're Canadian. That was the first reason that drew me exactly. in. I wasn't a fan of their music. I was more a fan of where they were from. Totally. It's like you saw um, the flag yeah. and knew. Yeah. I mean, dude, I remember when they sang that song, you know, uh, you know, uh, when they're talking about, you know, actually, we're from Canada. There's a song, that, you know, yeah. the lyric that says, you know, we're from Canada. I was like, whoa, that's cool. Um, but then the thing like, you know, and then obviously BYO Records, you know, that was right around the time that uh, – you know, it was. The, I remember that was right around the time that I got into Seven Seconds. I remember. I still remember this show. I mean, this is such a legendary show. When I tell it to people, they're like, "No, this was this was one of this is by far like if there was a contest where you had to go up against people of like, all right, tell me a show you saw, and then the other person has to one up it. Yeah. The card that I would the card that I would throw onto the table after you know all the amazing shows i've seen you know agent orange the first time they ever came to you know to san francisco i was there front and center first time gbh comes over from fucking uk i went i was there at the on broadway you know uh, first time ssd control comes up i was there you know first time first time gbh comes over first time addicts came over I remember when the addicts came over and they brought this dude with leopard skin hair and I was the guy that recognized him as that's Peter from Peter and the test two babies. First time exploited came over. I was there, you know, um, I, you know, and then other bands scream first time scream comes to the San Francisco. I was there. I'm still friends with Pete Stahl. His dad, or I, I always asked like his parents drove them. They were in like a, they were in a station wagon, I think. And I, and I was out front. I'm like, that's Scream. I'm here. Like, I had the record still screaming. That record changed my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I was so into them. Um, you know, who else? Legendary. You know, X, Black Flag, Circle Jerks. I, you know, I saw them all. You know, uh, all of those lineups. I was there. I was the kid that paid, you know, like just so everyone knows, I would pay full price and I would be in the pit from the beginning of the show to the end. Like, I, I my clubs were the on-Broadway my club was, you know, the, the there was another club called the Mab. You know, I got to see Social Distortion original lineup multiple times, um, you know, and then I would say the but the best <clears throat> the show, Damien, that I would throw on the table that's it, that I feel to this day is like okay, I don't know if that could be beat on Broadway, summertime, first band that was up was a band called America's Hardcore, a fucking they incredible really, band that. Yeah. Oh my God. They were okay. Now. Okay. You're going to, your head's going to explode. They were one of my all time favorite bands. America's hardcore. Love them. You ready for this? America's hardcore into seven seconds as a three piece. Kevin's playing guitar and singing. They fucking crushed. That's fun. They fucking crushed into youth brigade original lineup. And you're ready. Who closes it out? Who's that? Minor threat. Minor threat. 
Oh, is there a video of that show or photos at least or something? There's photos, I think, but I remember minor. I remember that night. It was America's Hardcore, America's Hardcore, Seven Seconds, Youth Brigade, Minor Threat on Broadway. And I remember Minor Threat during their show. Um, they they went through, everyone is just losing their mind, singing along, just everyone's having the, the most amazing night ever. And I remember Ian couldn't even keep a microphone. Like, you know, he's singing, you know, at the beginning of the show, microphone disappears, you know, just cord broken. Then he goes over and probably grabs, you know, like one of the backup microphones, you know, three songs later, that's broken. Then by the end of the night, I'll never forget what he said. He grabbed, like, I want to say he grabs, like, the kick drum microphone that's miking the drums. And he literally says to the audience, like, okay, this is the last microphone. If you take this, we're done. <laughs> and, you know, no one did. And they, I, I remember I did a stage dive that night to, um, what's the song that it goes, do, cock, do. He goes, uh, he goes, da, da. He goes, um, it's like, uh, it's, uh, God, I'm forgetting on the song. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. But I did a stage dive that night to to um, Minor Threat where I literally was so stoked that I jumped off of the stage and and, and went over the crowd. Like people were like – people that night said, dude, we were watching from the balcony and you came out and you were running so fast that you dove. But the thing was you dove out of the lights. We just kept seeing you go. You know how like sometimes the – you know, like where people stage size is kind of lit up from the yeah. from the lights on the stage. Like they said, dude, you just kept going. And I remember I landed on my chest and like I, all that went through my head was, oh, great. I'm paralyzed. Like I just remember going – like hearing my mom's voice. You're going to get paralyzed doing that. And that was all that was running through my head. But that to me, I'll never forget that show because – What a show. That, that was like – yeah, that was just – you know, and I know this sounds like – I don't know. Like I don't know if it's silly or if it's like – I don't know, like romanticizing, but I swear to God, man, like I really believed at that time of my life, like we really were different and we really were making a difference and we really were trying to change. And, and, you know, I was into, if the kids are united, they'll never be divided. Like I really, like as a kid, I believe that, like, I didn't think it was just some lyrics to some song, like talk minus you know, talk uh, minus action equals zero from DOA. Like I believe, like I believe that I was like, yeah. So I really, I remember being at these shows and I really felt a part of something special and it really, it affected my life. Like it really affected me as, as a kid, you know, those were my formative years as a, as a, as a kid going from like a teen to a man. So like I was around strong women that were in the scene. I was around, you know, um, people and, you know, know, whether it was, they were gay, straight, everyone was welcome. Um, I remember I was so proud of our scene back then because you looked out in the crowd and sure there was, you know, a lot of us with Mohawks, but there was just kids there with just haircuts and glasses. And, you know, you're like, Hey, what's your name? Like, yeah, I go to Stanford. I'm a huge fan of Fang. Okay. You know, like, you're like rad. What's your name? Oh dude, I'm Pete. I'm a, you know, I go to Berkeley and I love verbal abuse, dude. What's up? You know, like it was just, you know, and then there was other kids. Yeah, man. I, I ran away from, uh, you know, I ran away from the Midwest and now I live in, you know, in a squat here in, in uh, San Francisco. What's up? Mm-hmm. Like it was such a cool time to be around and I'm so grateful I was there. Yeah. And it's also like, just punk rock, punk rock history wise, like that kind of 87, 88 era 
is where you have like the rise of the Gilman scene. Like it seems like it's such a like a seismic shift happening in American music. Like it's pre Nirvana, obviously, but like it's kind of gearing up for the the next wave of this thing to kind of boil over again. Absolutely, because you know from from the on Broadway to the Mab, you're absolutely right. You know, it, I think the Transition Club was this place called the Farm that we had mm-hmm. in San Francisco, a legendary venue. where legendary you know that was and that was where i started to play in a band that was fine finally at that point you know i uh i was so into music and you know always you know at the shows that i remember like i i always tell the story about this guy that was like and it was at the on broadway he was it was in between bands and i was just sitting up standing up front and he was like kind of putting all the shit back together from the last band that played, you know, everyone just thrashed the stage and now he's putting it all back together. And he looked at me and he was like, man, you should be in a band. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, are you talking to me? And he's like, yeah, you should be in a band. And I was like, why should I be in a band? He's like, you're more into it than the band on stage. Like you're, you're, I'm like, really? And I remember like, I was like, fuck man, maybe I could be in a band. And I remember started playing bass that led to being a singer. And then, you know, I got into front line, you know, I started front line out of San Jose, mm-hmm. started playing the farm, you know, and that's where I met like, you know, Tim Armstrong, he, you know, he, we operation Ivy and us would play, you know, we do these little like Saturday matinee shows, you know, little did I know at the time when you're watching them, like how legendary they would be. But that was really the beginning of like, you know, Gilman had been going on, but like those guys and green day and all of that was just, that was starting to bubble at that point. Well, also that first wave of things you're talking about, the farm, it's like, it's crazy to think that at the farm, you'd have shows that would have like the Melvins, Neurosis and no effects playing. Oh, standard. It's like such a, Dude. you know, like that's, that's underground music, like the punk rock side of it. But that's, that is like the Rosetta stone for underground music to come type thing. Oh, totally. Or, you know, or nights that were even stranger, like, you know, like corrosion of conformity, verbal abuse. And then like, I don't know, like, you know, someone from LA, like it was, you know, I remember just so many different bills, you know, and, and it was that way, you know, metal was really infiltrating, you know, like we were all into metal, you know, mm-hmm. everyone, you know, at that point, you know, saw a lot of people start growing their hair, you know, and like, so verbal abuse, they were like, definitely like, I remember their lineup with Scotty, uh, on, a Scotty on, um, on vocals, you know, after their first record, like the VA rocks your liver record, like that era was like my favorite era of the farm because it was really when like all of a sudden like punk rock and metal were definitely colliding and it was a cool, cool moment, you know, cause it wasn't, it was, you know, you didn't know what was to come, but mm-hmm. it was like, you know, you know, and that's, that's kind of when I started hearing no effects even though they weren't metal, but they definitely had that influence. Oh you know? yeah. Like the leads, the metallic RKL. leads. Kind of, yeah. The RKL yeah. kind of vibe too. RKL. Like, you know, you know what it was, was the drumming. I think I remember right around that time period and, and like everyone that's listening, like, I don't know the, but I do know that it's super important to the, um, to the his, historical fat, uh, fact of like no effects. But I, from what I understand, like the guy bomber, from RKL really is the one that like developed that style of drumming that no effects would then take on. Right. I mean, that's what I understand. I think that's what I've always heard. It's like, and when you hear no effects, I heard that guy was the guy I heard that the, I heard a RKL is like the blueprint for like what the guys in no effects were like, okay, like that's what we got to do. Like play it faster, million changes 
and have that type of, you know, have that. And Eric Sandin, of course, such a ripping drummer for no effects. Oh, totally. And with, with, but with bad religion harmonies, like that was like, there you go. It's RKL mixed with bad religion to make this sort of like, well, that's like the million dollar formula right there. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Literally. Uh, yeah, literally. You know, and, and, yeah. And, you know, Bad Religion is another one of those bands, you know, I was there, the, you know, I got to see that. I remember I went and saw Bad Religion on Easter Sunday, you know, like what great, I always say, what great marketing, like Brett Gurowitz already knew at that point, what better day to get everyone to come see you mm-hmm. than on, on Easter Sunday, Bad Religion. And I made it to the show. I totally remember my dad was just like, now let me get this straight. You're leaving Easter dinner early <laughs> to go see a band called Bad Religion. <laughs> and all I could, all I could come back with is, Dad, the singer has a PhD, <laughs> or he's getting a PhD. Working on a PhD, Dad, give him a break. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt. Yeah, I just read the No Effects. Uh, no, 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 sorry, the Bad Religion book that's coming out, and then it talks about Brett brought the logo in the first practice. Like they had that logo the first practice. Like, oh my god, that's so wild! Like the one yeah. of the most genius punk logos ever, and it's like uh, at fifteen they yeah. figured it out. Yeah, and I drew that logo so many. I, I am responsible for so many walls being painted over because of drawing that logo. Yeah, I mean, bad religion. That first record, man. You know how yeah. the hell be any worse? Still so great. And then, you know, they were another band that, like, as a little kid, like Social Distortion was the. I remember Youth Brigade was the first band that, like, I got to meet as like a kid. Mm-hmm. And and then when they came back up, I remember I was so psyched because their manager called me. And said, "Hey, is this Joe Sib?" And I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "Hey, it's um, Rich, you know, manager for I think his name is Rich. Like, I, I, I manage, you know, I manage Youth Brigade." And I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "I got your number from the guys. So, uh, what do you think about flyering? If you flyer in San Jose, we'll get you into San Francisco for free." And I was like, "What? Like, I get a flyer?" And he's like, "Yeah." And I'm like, <laughs> "Sweet." So then he sends me, you know, a box of flyers, and then I went to all the shows, and I was so proud, dude, handing out my Youth Brigade flyers, and then I. I remember he's like, you're on the guest list. And I'm like, what's that? Like, I didn't even know what a guest list was, yeah. you know? And, uh, yeah, I got into the show for free and I was like a guest of the band. And that's where I met Mark Stern. And he was just like one of the nicest people ever. Mm-hmm. And we were still friends to this day. I mean, they, when I got married, the Stearns organized my bachelor party, you know, like they were just so, which was totally Stearns esque bachelor party you know it was we're going to mexico and we're gonna surf and eat the best food ever okay like sounds good like they're just such you know such great people yeah no and and still like i don't know like a, a still an unbelievable band like one of the few bands that never like you know they obviously had the brigade years but they like never stopped they kept going like one of the few bands that never they played this last weekend yep. they've been on tour uh, with good riddance. Yeah, we played with them this year at punk rock bowling. So it's like there you go. You know, you set your watch. Dude, I bio. turned, yeah, I turned sixteen at a youth brigade show, <laughs> and then years later, I think I turned forty at a youth brigade show. <laughs> See that? What? What more could you want from a band? I don't know. Um, you know, I love them, they, and you know, they were such a. They were also an inspiration for BYO Records. I mean, mm-hmm. God, growing up, oh my gosh, I you know BYO SST. Uh, you know, that would, those two labels were such an inspiration that, you know, it really kind of, you know, after being in, you know, frontline and then later on to like, you know, move to LA, Brian Ray, Brian Turcott, you know, he was the one that I remember I got kicked out of frontline because, you know, that, that ended with them, you know, ended 
just like a lot of bands, you know, they were like, Hey, this isn't happening. You know, we don't want to be in a band with you anymore. Really? Why not? I don't know. You talk a lot. No, they were just <laughs> like, uh, you know, it was just not happening. So then, you know, I remember I'm about 22, 23 years old. And do they Brian keep going? Turcott, Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Do they keep going without you? Like a different singer? Um, no, no. It was like, I mean, no, the band broke oh, up. Okay, we were okay, done. Yeah. You know, but like they went on to start like that was when metal was super big. They went on to start another band, uh, like more metal. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was I was just in San Jose and and Brian Ray got you know he calls me up and he's like dude I heard you're you know I heard Frontline's over and I was like yeah you know at that point you know he's just like what are you doing I'm like I don't know dude and he's like come to L A and I'm like and do what he's like dude start another band like what are you gonna do in San Jose like you know like because at that point you know it was San Jose it was the late eighties and might have been the 90s, you know, early 90s, like 90. I think it was 90. And it was just different. I didn't really have a place in music at that point because everything really went metal. And I wasn't a metal dude. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, I wasn't into metal and it was really going metal. And I was like, ah, and he's like, dude, come to LA. You know, like there's a different scene down here. And at that point in LA, it was like, you know, punk rock wasn't really happening. But like the bands that, you know, like the bands that were happening down in LA, it was more like, you know, Jane's addiction Mm -hmm. and stuff that I was into. Like, I was like, okay, like, you know, this, that's kind of like more what I'm into, you know, like the Jane's addiction era, you know, that early era. And like, I was like, wow. All right. So I remember, you know, like Brian worked at slash records. So that was super cool. Cause you know, it was the label that X was on and faith no more and all these bands germs and everything. Yeah. Yeah. The germs, all that stuff. And, uh, I remember I, I, he's like, you could stay with me, you know, you can stay on the couch if you want for like, I remember his rule was you can stay with me for one month, but after that you're on your own. And I was like, all right. So I came down, slept on his couch. I remember the first night I ever went to his house, like I met, he, he's like, yeah, I'm having some friends over. And I'm like, all right. And you got to remember, like I was living in San Jose with like 20 people in like this huge house where like you lock the door with a padlock. Like the toy, like the bathroom didn't have any toilet paper. Like it was so fucking just, you know, just sketch. Yeah. And all of a sudden I go to, I go to LA and my friend Brian Ray has a real job with like a real car and like a real apartment and a real girlfriend and like real, like I remember I go to a party and like at the parties, like, you know, like I, I think it was like some of the dudes from Fishbone, one of the dudes from, you know, uh, Jane's Addiction, you know, someone from Pygmy Love Service. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit shit you know and i'm sitting there like you know a pair of shorts and vans you know and like a baseball cap on and i remember i was like wow and i remember the best thing about it was i was like it was like wow this is cool man like there's a lot of stuff going on down here and i remember that was like when i remember i remember like i went out and i was like i can reinvent myself like you know, like no one knows me down here. Like no one knows that I got super drunk and threw up everywhere at the party. No yeah. one knows that like, you know, I was, I was, I, I was, you know, this guy, no one knows that. And I was like, wow. And I remember I was like, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to change the, like my haircut. And I remember I, I went to a barber on Melrose and I walked in and, uh, he goes, all right, man, what do you want to do? And I go, I don't know. And there was a dude sitting there. And, uh, I remember I saw a guy with slick back hair and I go, I want to, I want to wear my hair like slick back. And he's like, all right. And he sat down and basically gave me the haircut that I've worn for the last 30 years that day. Yeah. And I was like, the new you. All right. That's what, yeah, this is me. I slicked my hair back. And I remember, um, I wanted to start a band 
And I, 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 back then you'd go to like guitar center and you'd like find these little numbers, like looking for a front man, or you'd put a poster up like, Hey, we need a drummer. And I remember at that point, like this was, this is what I was into. I made a little thing. I was looking for a band or looking for a drummer or something like that. And I wrote like, this was my, these are my influences. Uh, it was, uh, the fluid because they had just come through and I love them. And I was like, all right, great band. Yeah. Uh, it was the fluid. Naked Reagan replacements, and I know everyone's going to go what, but you might get it. Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah, remember the first Goo Goo Dolls record? Buffalo is very close to Toronto, so the Goo Goo Dolls punk oh. legend looms large here too. They played with the Necros here one time. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So hold me up, dude. Yeah. Roadrunner record. I was just like, so at that point, I was just you know I want to start a band that sounds like that. I got a phone call. These three dudes were like, "Hey man, where do you live?" I'm like, "I live off I live off of Sunset." So do we. Go up to their apartment, hanging out. They all come out and we start talking, drinking some beers, and they're like, "You know, we're from Chicago." I'm like, "Oh, cool." But it was a trip, dude, because I was like, "Yeah, dude, Chicago, Naked Reagan, Pig Boy." And they were like, "Huh?" Like they didn't <laughs> they weren't into any of that. Yeah. They're, you know, they, they were more alternative. They were like, they're like, oh, dude, we're into like, you know, we're into the replacements. We're into, I remember they were the first dudes that ever played me the Pixies. I was like, what's this? Like, this is, wow. Okay. This is cool. I remember I had no like clue on any of that stuff. And then I remember our common ground though, that like of what we loved was the clash. Like we all could agree. We love the clash. And I remember, um, they were like, let's, you know, let's jam. And that, you know, we jammed one time and we we're, I just, we just all knew right away, like this is happening. And we're like, you know, let's, 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 let's start a band. And that was wax. Oh, that was, that was before that was after frontline. I mean, uh, yeah, that's after lifeline. Frontline, yeah. Lifeline. Yeah. Frontline. It goes, it goes frontline. And then we changed our name because of some like legal reason uh, to lifeline. Okay. And then right around lifeline, lifeline, it gets super metal. And that's when I get kicked out. And, um, and when I say kicked out, like it, like it was rightfully so like, I was such a, like, I've always been like a real, like, um, like when I was in a band, like I made Henry Rollins get in the van, like even Henry Rollins would be like, dude, this is too much. We got to take a break. Like I was so, I made Henry Rollins seem mellow. Like I, I made us practice all the time. I made us do shows all the time. Like I always had us work, 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 work. So finally it wasn't fun anymore. So, but, um, yeah. So when lifeline ended, that was the reason why I had to move to LA was, so you guys did a split also with no alternative, right? Yeah. That, that was right before we ended. That's a, a great band. And one of the, I guess one, one of the few bands from San Francisco that also kind of had that extended run, right? Like they were a first wave yeah. band surviving into the nineties almost. Yeah. And the reason that whole thing came together was we were managed by this guy named Paul Rat, who put on all the, you know, rap music. Oh, rap music. Rap of course. Yeah. Yeah. So that was Paul Rat, And, uh, uh, he hooked up that EP together and, uh, yeah, he put that EP together. So I guess what's the big difference between, uh, the, like, obviously you, the LA scene, but I guess going back, like, did San Jose, like, was it like part of the San Francisco scene? Like, where did it kind of fit in or was it like a land unto itself? San Jose straight up. We, we totally wanted to be our own scene mm -hmm. and it, and you know, in the early years, you know, if you were for, you know, San Jose, definitely like we were proud. We were from San Jose. I mean, at one point the frontline was called SJ's frontline, San Jose's frontline. Like we were so proud to be from San Jose. Like that was you, we, you know, the faction from San Jose, you were like, you were definitely 
letting people know you're from San Jose. Like if you were a band, like I never even heard of it, but like you would never say back then, like, you know, like, so, you know, where are you guys from? Oh, the Bay Area. What are you talking about, dude? You're from San Jose. Like you never. And, you know, Santa Cruz was the same way. You know, Blast and Mock, all these bands that came out of Santa Cruz. They were like, dude, we're from Santa Cruz. We are not from San Jose. And, you know, bands that were from San Francisco, you know, they were like, hey, man, you know, we're from San Francisco. You guys are from San Jose. We definitely wanted to hold on to like where you were from. That was definitely important. Mm-hmm. But I guess everything's geographically so close that you are going up to San Francisco to play shows at the farm and like, Oh my God, constantly. Yeah. yeah. Dude, every weekend it was like, you're playing the farm, you're playing the Mab, you're playing the on Broadway. And then when those places close down, you're going over to Gilman street, you're playing Berkeley square. You're playing uh, back then Ruthie's in. I mean, it was like all of those places were putting on shows and the, I mean, Sure, you would you would definitely let people know you're from San Jose, but there was never like any stink eye like from anyone like as far as I remember. I mean, maybe when you went to San Francisco, like the people that were living in the city, you know, sure, if you were in your twenties and these fifteen year olds are coming up to see GBH, you're probably a little annoyed, <laughs> but like that was just part of it. It's it, it, you know, that was just but I don't ever remember anyone not being super stoked they were from what scene their band was from it was definitely like we're from santa cruz we're from san jose we're dude we're from gilroy really you know like like people people claimed you know like where they were from it's a little bit like warriors you remember in warriors yeah we're like all of those guys like you, know, you have this gang you have that gang and they're like they're all like yeah man we're claiming this territory like we definitely were proud to be from San Jose. It's so wild to think of like what's to come musically and like all the bands that are kind of like playing in these, you know, neighboring, you know, basically from Los Angeles on down. Like you have like in San Diego, like the rock from the crypt stuff before it's rock from yep. the crypt. You have like even like LAPD, the pre corn band kind of going at this point, I guess, too. And all the power yeah. violence yeah. stuff, Pennywise, like. Pennywise, all that. It's such a it's such an amazing moment. Like the late eighties are, you know, everyone makes a big deal, but obviously the late seventies and the early eighties in California. But I love the late eighties. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, well, the late eighties, you know, really were the precursor to like all those bands you just mentioned. You know, Pennywise, all of them, because then in the nineties they that was their, you know, that was the turning point for Epitaph Records. I mean, you know, you had rant, you know, that's that that you know that second that's i guess it would be you know considered the third wave of punk rock because i guess first wave is pistols second wave is circle jerks black flag third wave big you know is is uh you know rancid green day pennywise and um and i really feel like all that was you know all the stuff that i just talked about you know for the last you know 30 40 minutes is all the precursor to what we would all get from that you know yeah. the green days yep. the the rancids the pennywise and that you know even offspring and epitaph you know just that whole that whole moment in time where it just all connected and then you know and then you have a lot of bands that you know were a part of that but maybe not experienced the same success like i was such a fan of sam i am i mean they were like one of my all-time favorite bands um you know they were a part of that like major label signing bands um you know and and you know they were part of that and then there was you know so many other bands that you know kind of got scooped up in that time but you know the ones that really stick out that kind of went on to survive obviously that next thing was you know green in my opinion this is just my opinion it was definitely like green day and uh rancid and um you know obviously pennywise but like you know offspring you know like yeah. even though offspring kind of 
and just once again, in my opinion, um, you know, obviously their roots are punk rock, but I feel like their music, you know, kind of went in a different direction. Whereas, you, you know, the bands that I like green day, same thing, they went in a different, you know, bigger direction, wider direction, you know, um, they, they became so popular and, but it, it really is, I think a part of the, of, of that all being spawned from, you know, that era of music that I just talked about, you know, the minor threats, the, the descendants era, all of that early, you know, that 85 era really, you know, I think is what spawned all that, that, you know, the bigger bands like Rancid and Green Day and Pennywise and Offspring. Absolutely. What about, where did Wax fit in, <clears throat> excuse me, with those bands? Like, as you're saying, you know, you're a hundred percent from nowhere. No, <laughs> well, like, you're we were our own thing, man. You know? Yeah. You know, um, I love, you know, for Wax, man, like, you know, we, it's so funny because we played with all those bands. I mean, all those bands, you know, took us on tour, um, mm -hmm. before those bands blew up, you know, I remember we, we all played together, you know, I mean, gosh, Wax used to do shows with no effects. You know, we did shows with Rancid. Rancid was in our first video. I don't know if you saw that. Like, did you see that, that video of Lars and Tim running around? I made them run around all day. Yeah, no, and, and and I think I think I even saw like I think I even even like seeing flyers like it was like to me being in Canada it was like oh that's one scene you know it's only years later that you're like yeah oh it, it was like obviously one scene but different yeah it was it was one scene and different and and I think you know I think where the thing that like w you know was the unifying moment for like wax with punk rock and alternative music was you know our roots and like. You know, you couldn't help like have a connection to punk rock because I was the singer of the band. So I definitely flew that flag pretty hard it, and not even flew the flag. It, yeah. You know what? I don't even think I flew the flag. It was just a part of like who I was and my makeup. And those guys, you know, knew that. And I, and they liked it because they were like, yeah, our singer, you know, he's grown up on black flag and, and, and the germs and, you know, punk rock. And that's why he spends more time off of the stage doing stage dives than singing like that's cool like we're okay with that <laughs> and then what i was stoked on was i had never listened to bands like the pixies i had never listened to the replacements i had never listened you know i'd listen to the replacements a little bit because that was obviously an influence but like but it, i wasn't into that i never you know like soul asylum yeah, like yeah. they turned me on to so much music that really you know, became such a part of my life. Um, and I think like what I loved about playing in wax was like, we had this guitar player that like really loved the pixies. So like you can hear that and you had mm -hmm. this, you know, bass player that like me and him really loved the clash and like, you know, the Ramones. And then you had a drummer that kind of loved it all and he could also write songs. So like, it was this really unique moment because I'd never been in a band with four people that could write songs. Mm -hmm. You know, usually you're in a band with like, you know, one guy or two guys or, you know, something like that. I was in wax. It was four dudes that all could write songs, four dudes that all, all the dudes could sing Four people also that could have fronted the band. That's what I loved about being in wax. Each dude could front the band. Like that's, that was like something I loved because that's, that's a really cool thing to share on stage when you have four people that have four personalities that can each grab the mic and say something or you know it's just a you know you know what i'm saying for yeah. being a oh, yeah, definitely. it's like yeah changes it you know completely. like oh it's it's you don't have you know you're it's not on all you know as you you being the singer when it's not on all your when it's not all on your shoulders you know it's 
awesome. <laughs> yeah, it makes it way easier. <laughs> way, oh. it's just, but it also makes for a better show. Yeah, definitely. It was like, so how did that relationship with Caroline Records come? Where is it just from like live shows? Because that's your first, your first release is on, you know, a pretty big label. Yeah. So what happened was this. So it's um, the way that all went down was it was like the nineties, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm probably 23 or 24 years old and I got waxed together and we're doing shows and we're playing different places. And then right around that time period, it's like, there's a lot of record labels in Los Angeles and there, and their people are getting signed and like, and like it was a big deal to get signed. Mm-hmm. Like that's something like for people listening that are, you know, not our age, like getting signed was, it, it wasn't lame. It was something you worked towards. You wanted to, you wanted to have to be on a label that would, you know, hopefully give you enough money to make a record. And, and this is, you know, this is before like Epitaph existed and independence labels existed but they didn't exist like they existed in the future like you know no one knew it was possible to do what brett gurowitz did at epitaph yet so you have to like when you're hearing when when, when you're hearing me talk for the next 15 minutes just keep in mind <laughs> you know if you're you know if you're I don't even know what age you'd be at, but if you're like, you know, if you're, you know, 20 to, you know, 35 years old, you have to remember like, there's no, there's no like access to like the internet. There's no, Hey, I wonder if we could do this on their own. There's no, all the gatekeepers are like just standing there, not letting anything in that's different. And when I say gatekeepers, I mean, MTV, I mean, radio, I mean, even show wise, you know? Mm -hmm. So like when I, when I was in wax, all that it all all of a sudden what happened was labels started sniffing around to wanting to work with our band and at that point you got to remember Rancid hasn't been signed yet and Green Day hasn't happened so like all of a sudden you know we were we were doing shows and people were coming out and when i say coming out it's like labels like you know there's virgin records there's interscope records there are atlantic records there's electra records there's warner brothers and then there's all these other labels like zoo records and and then you know like so there's so many labels that are out there aggressively looking to sign bands and all of a sudden we found ourselves in a place where people were excited uh, about the idea of working with us and, and wanting to, you know, like, Hey man, we want to sign your band. And at this point, you know, like I said, I had just, I had come from San Jose, you know, to living on a guy's, you know, couch to all of a sudden I had this apartment. I was, you know, like, so the idea that like, wait a minute, I could get signed and like pay my rent off of this and do, you know, go on tour. I mean, that's all I wanted to do is I was like, I just want to tour and see the world and play music. So like I was, I was so up for it and it happened relatively quick. I mean, from the moment we started six months later, we were signed and, um, you know, we, we ended up making that first record for Caroline. And it was funny because the way it worked was Virgin Records own Caroline Records. And they did this thing. They did it with the Smashing Pumpkins. They did it with, I think, Drop 19s, where you know they had this idea where they were like, hey, why don't you put your EP out on – or why don't you put your record out on Caroline? And then that will give you the credibility of like an indie label. But you'll really be signed to Virgin, and your next record will come out on Virgin. So it was like this – Smashing Pumpkins thing, right? Yeah, and Smashing Pumpkins had done it. Yeah. It worked well for them. Yeah. So then we're like, you know, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I remember when we were signing to Caroline, I was so stoked that we were on Caroline for two records, Naked Reagan and Bad Brains. And I remember, yeah. you know, those bands hadn't been on that label in years, <laughs> but I was so 
like, oh my God, this is amazing. But the thing was, we weren't really on Caroline. Like Caroline was owned by Virgin. So I remember we, we make our record and we worked with Daniel Ray, who had produced like the Ramones and he was so great. And I remember we had so much fun making the record, but we weren't even in a real studio. Virgin like put us in this like I swear to God, I think it was like a studio where you only did vocals, but we ended up making our whole record there. It was like this one room thing. And I remember we were on the, we were literally on the lot of Virgin Records. So like, you know, the huge office was there. And I remember like Wax is making their record in this little like studio. I swear to God, dude, the studio was like, it was like two bedrooms, but we thought it was so bitching. And I remember we would skateboard all day long uh, in between whatever we had to do in the studio in the parking lot of Virgin. And they would get so bummed at us. And then I remember they had a party once for like Janet Jackson there. Mm-hmm. And we thought it would be funny to uh, valet the cars. So like when the cars would pull up, we would jump in and park them. And then, of course, Virgin got so bummed at us because, you, know, you know, we were just out of control. <laughs> yeah. And we taught Daniel Ray how to skateboard. And they were like, he needs to be in the studio. But instead, he'd be skateboarding with us. So – when that record got done, we went out to Caroline to meet our label. And I'll never forget, we fly all the way out there or we drive all, you know, we're on tour. We like do a tour across the States and it ends in New York. Like, all right. And we're going to play CBGBs. And there was this college festival called like new music seminar. And it was like, Oh, everyone comes and sees your band. So that day we're like, Oh my God, we're going to meet our label. You know, we're on Caroline, dude. They couldn't be more bummed on us. Like, like we show up, we show it, dude, we show up. And I remember the guy that was in charge of us, he was super, super cool. Um, and he was a sweetheart and he, and he kind of was like, he got stuck with us. So of course we're like, what's up, man. We're so psyched to be on Caroline. And he's like, all right, man, it's great to have you here. And then I remember like we met with the president at the time and the president even wouldn't, even wouldn't even take a meeting with us, dude. He, and I remember his assistant said, yeah, um, you know, he's only going to meet with two people because his office is super small. And I was like, right away, I'm like, that's fucking lame, dude. Like we're a band. Like you either meet with all of us or fuck it. And I remember we're like, no, you know, we're not going to take the meeting. So like right away, we already start off on the wrong foot. And then I remember that night we have to play the new music seminar. And I remember it's like drop 19s, smashing pumpkins, all these bands. Mm -hmm. And they put us on last band. I'll never forget it. Last band, and I'm not kidding up, kidding you, dude. Three in the morning. Three in the fucking morning. I'm like, I, I like, let's put it this way. I got so drunk that I sobered up before we played. Like I it was like, it was like, what? And I remember we go on stage that night, no one from the label, everyone's left. And the only people that came to see us that night, I'll never forget it. It was Daniel Ray. He brought Joey Ramone. And the guys in Degeneration, those were the only people. And dude, we went for it. We got off stage that night. Michael Alago too. That's right. Oh, the king. Was, this is these are yeah. These are the only people that came because I was super tight with Arturo Vega. That's another story. So Artur, so this is who comes. Uh, Arturo Vega brings Michael Alago and Daniel Ray, and then uh, all the guys in Degeneration come because of Daniel Ray. Mm-hmm. And that night we do. I remember. We go and we we do you know we do our we do our show we get done that night right when we're done guys in degeneration are like you're hanging with us we're gonna light the bar on fire and I'm like what are you talking about and they're like no dude we're gonna light the bar on fire and sure enough that night we go out with them and we go to this bar called the Continental it just got torn down out there yeah and we 
proceed to just go nuts that night. And sure enough, at about 5.36 in the morning, I look over and the bar is literally on fire. And I'm like, oh my God, I have found my people. This is my crew. These are my guys. Jesse Mallon and I, all we did that night, we just sat around, talked about the clash, talked about the Ramones, talked about, you know, obviously Joe, you know, was a friend of both of ours. So like, we just, our, our love for the Ramones, like him and I just, our love for the Ramones clash and um, uh, replacements. That's all we would talk about. And then, and then you know, bad brains and just how much we were into music. And I remember the next day we were supposed to fly back to LA and our record was going to come out like in September. And this is like July. And I remember we were all sitting on the stoop of where we stayed, the band. And we looked at each other and we're like, why the hell are we going back to LA? Like there's nothing in LA. Plus our label out here does not like us. Like we're screwed. Yeah. Like we got, we got, you know, dude, we got to stay here. And I remember we we're like, we literally were like, looked around. And I remember we went to a bar and like we had a beer. And then I still don't know who said it, but one of the people, one of the guys in the band said, we should live here. And before we knew it, we're like, yeah, let's do it. And we literally found someone that was like going for like, like, I'm going to lease my apartment. I'm out of here. And we're like, all right, we'll take it over. And we took over this woman's apartment on Bleecker and McDougal above a raised pizza. And we lived there. And I remember we would go to, you know, Caroline. I remember we showed up that Monday. And they were like, what are you guys doing here? And they were so bummed. And we're like, you know what? We decided to live here. And they're like, <laughs> really? And we're like, yeah. You know, I feel like we got off on the wrong foot. And, you know, let we go, you know we're going to you – know, they were just so like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then we walked around. I'll never forget. We walked around the village and we just started booking shows, dude. Went down to CBGB's. That was when Hilly was still there with his daughter. I'm like, hey, I'm Joe Sim. She's like, what are you doing here? Weren't you the guy on stage like like last you know Sunday morning at 3 a.m.? And I'm like, yeah. We want to start. We live here now. Can we do shows? And she's like, "What?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we live here." <laughs> and I think she was just like, uh, "All right." And you know, yeah, you can you can do you can do uh, you know next Thursday. Okay, we got our first gig booked. Then I walked down to the Continental. Hey, the other night we were in here and we lit it on fire. You know, we're friends of Degeneration. All right, you can have Saturday night. And then we went to the Lions Den, which was like a jazz club. <laughs> All right, we started doing like, dude, we just started booking shows everywhere. And then the way that it worked was every single week we'd have our shows. And then what started happening, people started coming out, dude. Like the first night we play CBGB's, 20 people. The next time, 60. By the time we left, dude, selling it out, Continental, same thing. We started doing shows with Degeneration. They knew everybody. So we just started playing with them. Before we knew it, you know, I'm doing a show in a basement. This guy comes up to afterwards, man, you do Sham 69, Kids United. I love that song. Let me sing it with you. Hey, man, what's your name? I'm Jimmy Gestapo. No fucking way. I saw you open for, you know, I saw you open for the Beastie Boys, you know, when I was a kid. He's like, what's up? Became great friends with Jimmy. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, it's just, it was, a, so this is the summer of like 91 and we are going nuts out there. And then sure enough, Caroline starts to like, all right, these guys are cool. And I remember like they, they got their head around what we were doing. Our record came out in September of 92. We all flew back to LA. We toured September of 92 all the way through to like 94. And then in November of 94, we went in to have a meeting with Virgin to talk about making our second record. At this point, uh, things have changed, man. Rancid signed, Offspring's out. Are about to come out. Green Day's about to drop. Like Dookie, I think. What what year does Dookie come out? 
I think it's like 94, right? The end of 94? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So then uh, they get signed. We go and have our first meeting with uh, Virgin Records, and uh, they sit us all down, and it was like a scene out of Goodfellas. I'm like, man, why, why, why is it like, you know, our A&R guy here, and why is, why is the lawyers here? And then they just basically say, hey, you know what? We're not going to pick up the sex, second option. And I remember I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, well, you know, we've decided, you know, we're going to let, we're going to let you guys out of the contract and uh, you can, you know, go on your way. And I, once again, I'm like, what does that mean? And then finally, like one of the guys in the band goes, dude, they just dropped us. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And I remember, dude, it fucking, I'll never forget as long as I live. Like it, everything went silent. I was like, wait, what? Like, like, what do you mean? Like, it, we, I couldn't even get my head around it. I remember I literally walked around like for like two days, just just not e- not even even to put into words what had happened. Now, once again, for everyone listening, I know right now you're like, well, dude, what are you even bummed about? You just put it out yourself, okay? Person that's thinking that that hadn't happened yet, and if it had happened, we didn't know how to really do it. So, just you know what I'm saying before you go on social media and tell everyone how lame I am. I'm just saying like that moment in time, we didn't know yet. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, it's like someone doing a flip on a motorcycle. You know, now everyone does it. But back then we hadn't done it yet. You know? So I was just like, my life just felt like it stopped. I was like, what the fuck? And I remember being so bummed and I came home and I, you know, I was with my girlfriend, you know, now wife. And we were just like, what just happened? And, Sure enough, though, everyone else around us was, you know, signed and moving on. And, and I remember, you know, I, I just was like, what do I do? And then all of a sudden, it was like after about a week or so, the whole upbringing in San Jose and my roots just kind of was like, well, you'll just put it out yourself, right? Like, you, you know, you, you made, you know, cause we had, that's one thing I forgot to tell you. We had made our record for Virgin. So not only did we get dropped, but like we made the record for Virgin. We turned it in. We, and it's, that's, that's one interesting part of the story. They sent us out to Boston and we recorded with Paul Coldry and Sean Slade who had just recorded Pablo Honey by Radiohead. Holy so like yeah. they were, they were, yeah, they right. had just done whole, they were doing great. So like, that's why the reason we worked with them to do the second wax record, 13 Lucky Numbers was for one thing and one thing only in creep when the guitar goes chunk chunk. Like we were like, we have to work with the guys that made that noise. So like we go out there. So then that's what ended up happening. We turned our record into them and in November they dropped us. And the, but the bummer was they kept the record. But at that moment I was like, when we got dropped and I was so bummed, I was like, well, fuck, why don't we just put it out ourselves? But the guys in Wax were like, dude, put it out ourselves. Like, we're not about that. You know, not no diss to them. They're like, dude, we're not getting the van type of guys. That's you. And I was like, yeah, but we can do it ourselves and we can start our own label. And they're like, nah, I'm not really into that. And I was like, well, let me see. You know, like, I think we should. And they're, they were kind of just like, all right, I guess, you know, let's see what we can do. And, you know, they, they were like, all right, you're right. Like, let's do this. You know, like, let's try to do it on our own. And I literally went to the guy that signed us, this guy named Phil Cordero the president of Virgin records. And I just went in there and I was 24 years old. And I just said, I said, dude, at that point I'm 25 maybe. And I was just like, Hey man, like you signed my band. You promised me everything. He's like, I know I'm sorry. It didn't work out. And he was an Italian guy. And I go, man, you're always calling me Paisan. You're always telling me we're Italian. We're, you know, we're, you know, we're this, we're that. I go, I don't know, man. Like you always tell me we're family. And he looked at me and he was just like, you're fucking right. 
this is lame. This is bad. And I go, yeah, man. I go, dude, I'm 24 years old, 25 years old. Like my life stops. Like, and he goes, well, what do you want me to do? I go, give me the record. Mm-hmm. He goes, what? He goes, Joe. And I remember at the time he's like, the record cost a hundred thousand dollars or $60,000 to make. And at that time, you know, that was like crazy. And I was like, yeah, give it to me. He's like, and I remember I had the paperwork from the lawyer and I got him to sign it. And he goes, you know what? I could get fired for this, but you're right. And I, he signed it. I went to Virgin. I got the masters and I remember I came home and that's how I started side one. And I was like, I'm going to start a record label. It's going to be called side one. And at that point, you know, I was friends with this. I was living with this dude named Bill Armstrong and he was like, dude, that's so rad that you got your record. Then, you know, he's like, you know, we just were, we were partners. We were friends. You know, we hung out all the time. He was in a band. I was in a band and that led to him. He said, well, fuck, I was going to start a label too. And I'm like, well, that'll suck. We're best friends. He's like, well, why don't we do it together? Like side one and you know, I'll call it dummy. I'll, my company was going to be called dummy. Why don't we just put them together? And I was like, fuck, that's a good idea. You know, before we knew it, the wax record came out and then that, that was just kind of like primarily like, cause it was already like kind of on side one moving ahead. Mm-hmm. But then once that got off the ground, we ended up like, it got crazy and we ended up getting re-signed to Interscope. And when we got re-signed to Interscope, Bill and I went into a partnership of like, look, man, I never want to be in this boat again. We're like, Someone else is controlling my destiny. I want to start this label with you. Let's do it. He's like, fuck yeah. We started Side One Dummy in 95. And the first, uh, the, like, the first release that we did that you know wasn't a, a band that I was in or he was in or anything was the Swinging Hunters More Scared. A great we single. We ended up putting that out. Yeah. So we put out that release. So then all of a sudden I was on Interscope with Wax and, you know, all of a sudden we're making videos with Spike Jones and lighting people on fire and well, touring with Bush. He had taken photos Fucking. of you guys before that, right? Like he took photos on that yeah. first seven inch. Yeah. Um, you know, the way it worked with the way it worked with Spike was I knew we knew Spike way back because of skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Um Spike was taking photos. He actually worked for like a BMX magazine. Dirt was it called was, or something? Yeah, I think it was Dirt. Yeah. And he was always taking photos. And I remember I met Spike um, through the guys in wax and he would take photos of the band. And then all of a sudden, you know, when we were on Caroline, we had to get, we had to make a video. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, we didn't know who to make it. And, uh, the manager at the time for wax or a friend of ours at the time, this guy named Dan field. He's like, Hey man, why don't you guys have spike shoot the video? And we're like, really? And like, you know, we're like, Spike, do you know how to make videos? And, and that was crazy to say, like, <laughs> like, and he's like, yeah, I'll do your video. So while we were on Caroline, if you look, you can go on the internet now, you type in wax and then the video hush. Um, that was the very first video that Spike Jones ever made. And he filmed it in a park in one day with us in Chicago. And I remember, you know, that was the first video he ever did. I also remember that that was like, if you look in that video, that's the first video that there's a jackass stunt in there because Loomis, our drummer, who was a part of the jackass you know, that whole contingent, he was always like, at that point he was really into stunts. Like he was always like the night before we recorded the wax video, this is crazy. Like the night before we recorded the wax video, of course, like we go out drinking in Chicago cause that's really smart to do. And, um, you know, we're like <laughs> hanging out at this bar and the, the guys in wax, Loomis, soda and spike, they thought it was really funny to get in a cab on state street and there was this big bay window at the bar we were drinking at Wrigleyville Tap. 
and they right in front of the metro, right next to the metro. And uh, these dudes thought it was hilarious to get in a cab, tell the cab driver, "Yeah, man, give me a ride." You know, I'm going to the end of State Street. Whatever. All right, cool. The guy, you know, and then as they drove by the bar, they thought it was funny to open up the doors of the cab and roll out of the cab onto the street. So they're doing that all night, and they're doing it so much that at a certain point, Spike wails his head on like a pole and he has to go to the hospital <laughs> and all that go and, and you know what's so funny no one even worries about like they're just like oh dude spike will be fine we gotta shoot our video tomorrow morning <laughs> so all i remember is this dude and there's photos of this spike shot the whole video with stitches in his head and it was so rad because he wrapped his head up like like you know like when you're a kid you play like army and you have the you have the the wound on your head, you take the bandages around your head and like the, the blood kind of goes through the wound on your head. Yeah. Like that's how he shot the video. I'll never forget <laughs> it as long as I live. And there's videos to, ba- there's, there's photos to back that up. So then during the video shoot of Hush, and you can watch this, Loomis, he goes, I want to do a stunt in the video. And Spike's all, what do you want to do? And Loomis goes, I want to ride my bike. Then we had these bikes. I want to ride the bike into the front of this car and then I'll fly under the hood and then I'll fall onto the floor. And sure enough, they filmed it. And I always say that's the first jackass stunt that was ever done. That's, that's amazing, too, because it's like another kind of, you know, whole stream of pop culture. And it's funny now because, like, I've had I've had this, you know, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. And I had this wrestler on named Darby Allen, who's yeah. almost like his biggest influence culture wise was jackass. So oh my God. it's like another whole, and now he's, now he's a hugely popular wrestler in the wrestling world. So it's amazing to see how like yet another kind of cultural. In- yeah. I grew up with all those dudes. I mean, you know, like the whole jackass thing, you know, came about because like Loomis and soda and spike. And, and at that point, you know, Johnny Knoxville, like he, you know, it was like all those, you know, Johnny Knoxville just used to hang out with wax. Like he wasn't, he was a guy that wanted to be an actor. He used to, I remember he always had a script in his back pocket. He wasn't like, he wasn't Knoxville, you know, like once in a while you might call him Knoxville. He, he even had another nickname. I forgot what it was, but like, he was just a dude that come to our shows. And then I remember they all hung out together and they all drank together. And then, you know, kind of the stunt thing, like even with the second wax video where we lit the dude on fire, like those dudes that was what they were into they were like they were into stunts and i remember the guy that filmed the the video the guy that we lit on fire for that second video was spike jones which which is so crazy because you got to remember spike did his first video with us and then when we get dropped you know we go into obscurity when we get dropped by virgin and during that two year period that we couldn't find a label spike literally blew up i mean mm-hmm. i think it started with the breeders and then another band, the another Weezer band, video. and then ultimately the we, and then ultimately it's the Weezer yeah. Buddy Holly video, yeah. which at that point, you know, when Weezer blew up like that, it was so hard because Weezer used to open for us, and I gave I booked them their first show, like Wax books them their first show, like they're just a band that at one point, you know, I remember my my I'd be on the road and someone would be like, oh dude, I went and saw Wax or I went and saw Weezer, they covered like two Wax songs, I was like, really. And like, I didn't, I was like, oh, I guess that's cool. But like, I never thought of them as a band that they would become. And, you know, Rivers, I just like, I remember so many shows with Wax playing and Rivers just up front, like into it, like people stage diving over him and he's just up front. And I'm like, oh, cool. It's the dude with glasses up front. Like, I'm like, oh, dude, he's cool. 
like I was, you know, so full of myself that I'm like, oh my God, check out the little dude. The, he's cute. Like he's in a band called Weezer. And little did I know that they were just going to go on to rule the world. You know? But he's like, it's weird. Cause I've always, you know, they were a band that I always assumed ha- must've had some deep punk connection, but it seems like they were just like a band that, you know, like were, were otherwise metalheads and then got into like, yeah, the oh, scene that you guys were a part they of. They were totally metal. They were total metalheads. Like they knew how to play. They knew how to do it. Like they, they like they they you know they had their shit together and you know you listen to that first record and as much as I love Wax's first record you know it's great totally love it I'm great I'm honored you know I'm not honored when I'm trying I'm just I don't know I appreciate it yeah. like it's great yeah. but I'll tell you right now it's it's no fucking Weezer Blue record straight up I mean that Weezer Blue record it took me about let me see how many you know because after you know after we you know because you got to remember. And, you know, anyone can identify with this. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're on your way and then your whole rug gets pulled out from under you and, and, uh, you know, for me, like musically and career wise, when I got dropped and, you know, how to get the band re-signed and I went through that whole time period. I mean, sure. Like the, the thing that came out of it was, that was great was, you know, I started side one dummy and that was, that was amazing. Like, you know, none of that would have happened, you know, if I wouldn't have gotten dropped and if we wouldn't have had to do that. But the thing that was so hard to accept for so long was Weezer just blew up and like, you know, like it was, it was, it was like, that was the career we wanted. So like, it took me like, it took me so long to finally, like I always kid around, it took like therapy and like (laughs) 10 years to like, finally one day, like, listen to like my name is jonas and go all right this is a fucking rad song you know like yeah. like you know and and it and then you know it just i i i could get my head around it and now you know to this day i i'm kind of the other way about it i'm i'm just stoked that we did shows together and and that you know i was a part of that era that you know i booked their first show i was you know that's pretty cool to say you know that's fucking wild joe this has been one of the all-time best episodes of this podcast um really yeah like i honestly we've touched on like my whole thing is touching on worlds and i knew going in we were going to touch on a lot of worlds and you're going to be able to like you know connect a lot of uh different seemingly disparate universes but you connected even more than i ever thought we'd be able to connect going in which is my wow that's my bread and butter i love doing that so uh, would you come back for a part two at some point in the future oh my god i'd love to man i mean i i, I really damien it meant so much for you to have me on and you know, I, I love what you're doing. I mean, I mean, just, it's such an honor because the people you have on your show, I'm fans of like, you know, I listen and I'm like, Oh my gosh, like these are people that influence my lives and, and, and my life and, you know, so many others. So when it kind of came about, you know, that, that I got asked, I was like, Oh my God, I'd love to do it. Um, and for everyone listening, man, I hope I didn't talk too much uh i you know i mean i don't know i i i enjoyed uh you brought up a lot of memories of stuff i haven't talked about and god i don't even know like years no no it was it was was awesome i didn't even get to tell you that you know seeing 22 jacks in toronto years ago was that's like one of the all-time great front person performances and that had a major impact on me and i still have my 22 jacks robot poster on my wall really yeah dude but we'll get in that in part two all right, man. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me. And uh, hey, if anyone wants to to reach out, like I said, you can you can always hit me up on Instagram, Joe underscore Sib S I B, and then uh, yeah, hit me an email too, man. Uh, Joe Sib twenty two 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 at Gmail. 
com. And uh, Damien, thank you so much for having me, man. And keep doing, you know, what you're doing. Like I really, I really dig it. And uh, you're doing a great thing. And I, I hope, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to me as much as I loved talking today. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Joe will be back for multiple parts probably in the future because there's a lot more to get to. Oh, my gosh. I love when that happens on this thing, when we get to bring in all these places that I never thought would connect. Like when you sat down to listen to this, did you think that we would be connecting the Swingin' Utters to Jackass to Weezer? No. No. I certainly didn't. So I don't I don't think you did. I don't know. Maybe you did. Maybe you did. But anyway... Thank you, Joe. Speaking of thanks, I got to give a huge thanks to the next guest who's coming up on the show. In a few days, I'm going to try and get this up like in the next two days, we have a massive guest. Someone I've been trying to get on this thing for a long time and it's just never worked out with her schedule and my schedule, but finally it has happened and my gosh, is it a doozy. Next week on the show, from Best Coast, Bethany Constantino will be on the show. And let me tell you, whew, I'm excited for this one. This is a good episode with a good buddy, and you know we're 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 on a hot streak here. You know, who needs other forms of entertainment when you have people telling you how they got into punk rock? Like, I don't need anything else. I, I'm I'm giving up on all other podcasts. I just make this one now. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, that's it, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Go out there and make your own culture and uh, sign your organ donor cards. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay inside if you can. And if you're if you can't because you have to work because you're providing an essential service, thank you for doing what you're doing. Because um, um, you know, it, without you, I don't know what would be going on right now. Uh, and that's it. I will see you all next week. Bye. <laughs>